All right, let me open us in a word of prayer for this portion of the worship service, and then we will jump into God's word. Father, thank you so much for the privilege that we have of being able to be here, the privilege we have to be able to hear your word, Lord, the opportunity that we have to be changed by it. Our great God and King, we ask you that you would do a work in every one of our hearts. Lord, we have come as we are because we can't come any other way. But Lord, we ask that you would not allow us to leave as we came. Conform us to the image of your Son. Make us more Christ-like through listening to your word, through applying it, Lord, through seeing where our lives don't match it and changing. We love you, Lord. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. Well, Hebrews 10, 1 through 4 says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now let me ask this question. If it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin, why were they commanded to be offered over and over and over again? Well, the reason that those sacrifices were commanded to be offered was because we are a forgetful people. We forget so quickly. Jeremiah 2.32 says, Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Have you ever gone to a wedding and the bride says, Oh, dress! <gasps> I forgot to get one of those. Right? That's, ne <laughs> that's never happened. Sometimes some women are shopping for a dress before they're even, you know, dating someone or engaged or anything. They've already got the dress picked out years in advance. They can't forget that. And yet, we forget God so quickly. How quickly do we forget the most simple truths? Husbands in the room, do we not find that at moments you forget the most obvious truths that are right in front of your face? The myriad of little things that cause you to set your affection on your bride. When's the last time you noticed her eyes or her smile or the little idiosyncrasies that caught your attention and captivated your heart. We forget so quickly, which is why God wrote us a book, right? You tell someone something, they can easily forget it. A book, you have the advantage of being able to go back and read it over and over and over again. He wrote it to us so that our hearts would not grow faint and our affections would not grow cold. God should captivate our hearts and our minds and should be the greatest source of joy and enjoyment that we have. So I have to ask you this very simple question. Are you excited to be here this morning? I hope you are. We get to be together and worship the God who made the universe, the God who made us, the God who we rebelled against, and yet he still saves. He brings us back, and even as flawed and failing as we are, he allows us to worship him together. I mean, it is good to be with God's people worshiping God. This morning, we are going to be looking at Psalm 100. So if you have your Bibles, please open them to Psalm 100. It is a psalm of thanksgiving, and it should serve as the launching point for our praise and worship to our great God and King. 
So as you get there, I will read for us Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Our psalm of thanksgiving here opens with a declaration that all the earth should make a joyful noise to the Lord. Our joy, it should well up within us and it should overflow and be a natural expression of what we are feeling. Now we must recognize that the whole earth here is called to praise our God. There is no such thing as It's not that there's Christians and Muslims and atheists and Mormons and Hindus. These these are really ultimately artificial categories that we have created because in truth, there are only those who truly recognize who the king is and worship him and those who are oblivious or actively choose to deny the truth. We could say there are Christians and then others. That's fair. But we have all these subcategories, but the subcategories are inconsequential. It doesn't matter how you're failing to worship God or how you're choosing to deny God. You are just choosing to deny God. When we call out to God in praise, all we are simply doing is what we were designed to do. When you give the gospel to your neighbor, you have to realize when you offer the gospel, you give this good news to your neighbor, you are not offering them something that may or may not work for them. Like, I know your life is hard right now, this might help. Or I know your life is going really well right now, this might help. No, you are telling them you were made for this. This is what you were designed to do. And when we fail to worship, we are really ultimately failing one of the key reasons why we exist, why we were made at all, why God gave you life and breath and everything else. And guess what? One day, God will be worshiped by mankind as he should. Eventually, he will actively be worshipped by people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. Revelation 7, 9 says, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes, all peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. We are not only to make a joyful noise, we are also to serve the Lord with gladness. We're called to serve the Lord. We're to work for him. This service falls under the umbrella of the term that we use, we use this term worship. Now, sometimes people will talk about the the music part of a sermon or of of a service as the worship. They'll say, oh, there's the worship and there's the preaching and there's the giving and there's, but ultimately that's a misnomer because all of it is to be worship. Every aspect of what we do is to be worship. We are to worship all the time. When we sing, when we listen to a sermon, when we give, when we talk with people after the service, when we drive in our car, when we clean our house, all of this is service to our God and King and is worship. And it is to be marked with gladness, this text says. We get to serve the God of the universe. 
we should wake up with gladness every day, excited for the fact that we get to serve God. Going back to husbands, think about when you were spending time with your fiance. You didn't begrudge hour-long phone calls, right? You loved them. You were excited that you got to talk for a whole hour to your fiance. You weren't forced to help her move boxes. You got to pick up things for her and try to prove that you were really that strong. You know, the box might not be heavy, but you're going to act like it is, right? (laughs) So that she thinks, oh, I'm so glad he's here. He's such a strong guy. You didn't have to hold that tiny one-person umbrella. Who makes one-person umbrellas that are smaller than a human? But anyway, you, don't, you didn't have to hold that one-person umbrella over her to make sure that she gets to get in the car totally dry while you're getting soaked. No, it was a privilege. It was an honor that you got to do those things for her. Similarly, we should be even more excited when we get to do things for God. He doesn't need us He doesn't need anything. The scriptures tell us in Acts 17, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything. For he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Right? God doesn't need you. And yet, he allows us to serve him. He allows us the privilege of serving him, and that should fill you with gladness. The fact that the God who is far above us, doesn't need us, chooses to have us there. Chooses to have us here. The reality is, guys, God doesn't have to give you your next breath. But he is. So why are you here? Right? I just... Met a, met a man before the service who got in a car accident. A bad one. Rebuilt everything. I asked him if he was the bionic man, right? <laughs> they rebuilt all these things. Well, very simply, God could have said, you're done, right? A Mack truck hitting a two-door car, there's not much hope for you unless God says, oh, I'm not done with you, right? But the reality is, he's no more here by a miracle than you are. Your heart beats because God says, I'll have this person continue to live. So why are you here? It's not just to live another day. It's not just to go through the motions of going to Walmart, getting the food, going home, doing laundry, go to work, come home. That's not what you're here for. So why are you here? Well, our text continues and it says, come into his presence with singing. This is the main emphasis of the first two verses. We are to enter God's presence with shouts of praise and acclamation. We are to raise our voices to him. Now you may object and you may say, oh no, 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 I don't sing. It is a grace of God to everyone else that I'm holding back because you don't want to hear that. But the thing is, I know you know how to make noise because I've been around enough people, right? I've been around enough people at sporting events, whether it's a professional one or your kids' sporting events, I've been around some people when they watch the news. They know how to yell, right? They know how to make noise, right? We know how to express our feelings verbally. And we are to be so excited about our God that we ultimately can't hold it in and it flows out of us. It's, it's ultimately an awful statement that says, uh, preach the gospel always and if necessary, use words. That is not in the Bible at all. Words are necessary, I mean, I guess if 
And if, all, and if it's necessary, use words. You're like, well, it is necessary, so use words, right? You should be proclaiming this truth everywhere. Now, yes, your life needs to be consistent with the gospel. You don't want to undermine the gospel with your, your life. But it's not an excuse to not preach the gospel and, and to proclaim praise to our king at all times. We allow ourselves to get too caught up in the mundane things of life and we forget what's going on. Imagine with me for a second that you're a water boy on an NFL football team. And not just any football team, one that's in the Super Bowl, so not one that I root for. Your team is up by 21 points. There are three minutes left on the clock in the Super Bowl. The energy on the bench is electric. The stands are roaring. The sidelines, they're jumping up and down. And you, well, you're sitting there counting cups, making sure there's enough water. And then you count them, and then you sit back down, you fold your arms. Everybody's like jumping up and down around you. The stadium is rocking, and you're just sitting there. You're like, what? It doesn't matter. All I do is count water. Like, all I do is make sure that guys have water. This is dumb. Like, everyone would be like, what is wrong with you? Right? This team is about to win. You're, you're part of this bigger thing, and you just don't care. Right? We, we would look at that person and say, I think they need to go to the doctor. <laughs> right? Something, they, they're, not, they're not living in this reality. <laughs> but guys, what is the reality? The reality is our God wins. He wins so emphatically, he can speak of it in the past tense, in something in the future. It's called the proleptic future, where it's, I, I've, all, I've won. You're like, yeah, but it has, it's, not, it's not finished yet. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I've won. Oh. He has that level of confidence because he controls all things. We must remember, we are on the winning team. God has already won, and he gives us the privilege of being on the team. You may say, yeah, but my role is not critical. My role doesn't matter. Yeah, well, guess what? God described, describes the body of Christ as a body. Every part is critical. And you say, well, not every part is critical. Like, oh yeah? Take a pin and put it, whatever the least critical part of your body that you think is, you're like, what about the top of my ear? The top of my ear doesn't, you know, isn't that important. You're like, yeah, put a pin in that. Like, just poke it and then see how critical that is. It will make you miserable. <laughs> that one little poke and that tiny little part of your body that you haven't thought about ever and now you're like, oh, I'm thinking about it all day long, right? Because every part matters. We get to be part of this. We need to be excited about it. The psalmist continues in verse 3. He says, know that the Lord, he is God. We cannot praise a God that we do not know. We must acknowledge who Yahweh is. The psalmist says that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, indeed, Yahweh, the one who is the covenant maker. He made covenants with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses. Yahweh, who, made, who is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, he alone is God and there is no other. There is only one God and he is the God of the Bible. Now, it is, imp it is imperative that we acknowledge this. We must recognize that God is indeed God. Now, that may sound oversimplistic, Oftentimes I wonder if we really understand that God is God. That one simple truth, if we kept it at the forefront of our minds, would significantly impact every decision we make, wouldn't it? Why are we doing what we're doing? If it doesn't have 
the concept of God being God as part of our decision-making process, we're really lacking the major decision-making component. There are countless other things that we like to treat as gods, right? Some of us were constantly thinking about money or maybe a house, a car, our aspirations, our children, our comfort, our politics, our health, our happiness. And when we do this, a simple reminder that God alone is God can make all the difference. At the end of the day, remember, he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. The scriptures say it is he who made us and we are his. We must acknowledge not only that he exists and that he is God and that he makes covenants and keeps them, we must also acknowledge that he made us. He created us. From nothing, God formed humanity. Not because we were special. Not because he needed us. No, for his good pleasure, he made us and we belong to him. We are accountable to him. He is the creator and he makes the rules. He designed us for his purpose and as the clay, we cannot challenge the potter who formed us. We must remember that he is the designer, the creator, the sovereign, and we belong to him. The fact that God created us is not some tertiary doctrine. God's creation of you is a critical aspect of his authority over you. It is he who made us and we are his, our text says today. We belong to God. God didn't use some process that took millions or billions of years, taking time plus chance, in order to hopefully arrive at a special monkey that someday he could say, I'm going to call this one man. That's not what he did. No, God took the dirt from the earth that he had just made, and he formed a man and breathed life into him. And he made man in his image. Unique. Not slightly more evolved. Unique. And he made us for himself. For his purposes. The psalmist continues and expands on this. He says, we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. It's not merely that he made us. Rather, he made us and has set his affection on us. He has chosen us to be his people and not merely as slaves to do his bidding. We are chosen people and he leads us as a good shepherd and he calls us his sheep. How great a privilege to be the sheep of a gracious shepherd. He provides for us. He feeds us. He tends to us. He heals us. He leads us beside still waters. He protects us from wolves. Do not miss the beauty of the shepherd-sheep analogy. What fear, what anxiety, what stress befalls a sheep who has a good shepherd? The shepherd protects and provides I mean, think of the fervor and with what fury the shepherd is willing to protect his sheep with. 1 Samuel 17, David is talking to Saul before he goes out and fights Goliath. And Saul's like, really, can this boy handle this? And what is David's response? David's response is, but David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear, and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. That is a shepherd. Actually, more clearly, that is a shepherd boy. The youngest one. 
not big enough to go to war. Remember, when he talks to, when he's talking to King Saul, he was the one that was left home. Little David, big brothers are all at war. Little David's not any use to the war. Keep him there with the sheep. But he grabs the lion, grabs the bear, and kills it. That's a shepherd boy. But our God describes himself as the shepherd. How much more than a mere shepherd boy can the God who made the world protect you and provide for you? What is the only thing that a sheep needs to be afraid of? Wandering too far from the shepherd. That's it. You're close to the shepherd. There is no fear. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Believers, stay close to your shepherd. In light of who he is and the relationship that he has instigated with us, we are to enter his gates with thanksgiving, our text says, and his courts with praise. The gates and courts were an area inside the entrance of the sanctuary. It was a place where worship occurred. We are called to enter his gates with thanksgiving. Now the noun here, translated thanksgiving, carries the concept of public acknowledgement. We are to be a people who give public recognition to God. We are constantly to be recognizing what he is doing for us and through us. Are we doing that? Are we constantly expressing our thanks to God? Is our language permeated with the truth that our God and King is the one who provides for us? Have you given him thanks for the myriad of blessings in your life recently? There is a temptation for us not to think about things until there's a problem. Have you thanked him for a car that works? Only if you've had one recently that doesn't. My car right now doesn't have AC. I thank God when I get in a car with AC, <laughs> right? Do we thank him for our job, for our home? Um, I had surgery past year on my shoulder. I had not ever previously thanked the Lord for being able to type with two hands. I work behind a desk typing all day. It's really hard <laughs> to type with one hand. But we often don't think about the blessings until they're taken away. I mean, I know that for me, there's a temptation to forget about God's kindness because it's so prevalent. Everywhere I look, he is being kind toward my family. But it's more than just knowing that every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father. We can't just know it. We have to acknowledge it. There's a corporate aspect of our thanksgiving. We are to tell others. We are to acknowledge to everyone around us that our success, our health, Every good aspect of our lives is from God and we must publicly give thanks for that. Not only do we acknowledge these things are from him, we are also to enter his courts with praise. Now, praise expands and goes beyond just acknowledgement and thanks. One commentator calls it an enthusiastic glowing report. To exemplify the difference, keeping with the football analogy um, from earlier, imagine with me that the MVP is there giving you know, his, his speech after the game. And they, they ask him, you know, you got anything to say? He says, yeah, I want to thank all my coaches throughout the years who have invested countless hours in me. Um, you know, they made me the player I am today and I wouldn't be here without them. Well, that's Thanksgiving. Really, that's just acknowledging their work. It's giving credit where credit is due. It is good and right that he says that. But now listen to this. What if he says, but, but Mr. Kennedy, that particular coach, that man is amazing. 
He's a role model on and off the field. And he went the extra mile. He believed in me when I wanted to give up. He encouraged me. That man, that man is a legend. He took me from a skinny kid with a dream to the athlete who stands before you today. That man, this, this trophy belongs more to that man than it does to me. Do you see the difference? One says, data, facts, acknowledged, good. This one says, oh, no, but you don't understand. We, we, we got to keep going here. Like, yeah, yeah, we know, we know, uh, you know you're going to give credit to God. You're like, no, 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 you don't get it. You don't get it. God, he's, he's that much better than I can expect. I don't have words for it. Like, he's that good. Like, man, you really love this Jesus guy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and not even enough. Now, we see the difference. Our praise is to be intentional and it is to be directed. It's not merely generic thanksgiving and praise. We are not just to be a thankful people. We are not just to give thanks and praise where it's due. We are to be a people who give thanks to him and bless his name. We are to make God's name great. When people interact with us, they are to come away thinking more highly of our God. Imagine with me that you are that fork in the road. We, we went camping earlier in the summer, and there are parts where the water is coming down on the river, and there's a big rock Water doesn't go over the rock. Where does it go? Around, one way or the other. When water hits that rock, it has no choice. One way or the other. We are to be that way, whether it's with the gospel. People should come away. We should share the gospel, and they either accept, like they either come closer to God or hate him more. It's not our decision what they do, right? We're, our job is to present it. But similarly, just about God in general, People, when they interact with us, should come away either saying, man, he loves God and I hate him now too because I hate his God. Okay, that's fine. You can. We're not to be obnoxious, but we are to be that, that fork in the road for them where people cannot interact with us and walk away not thinking of God. They have to think of him one way or the other. They have to. At the end of the day, do our co-workers think better of our God because of how we've acted? Do the children that God has put in our home think more highly of our God because of the countless hours that they spend with you? Does the random stranger that you have a conversation with come away with a higher view of God? This should be our drive and our passion. We want everyone to think rightly of God. We give thanks to him. We praise him so that his name would be made great among all the peoples. The psalmist now turns to the explanation, the reason for why we should be thanking and praising God this way. First, he says, the Lord is good. The goodness of our God is a constant concept we see throughout Scripture. He created a good creation. He was good in his interactions with Israel, and he is good with how he deals with us. That should be a great comfort for us. Not only is he good, but he loves us. The concept that someone so good could love someone so wicked as we are is really hard for me to get my mind around. But it is, the, it is through his goodness and his love that God chose to send his son, who is equally loving and good, to come to earth, live a perfect life, be crucified and die, be buried and raised from the dead so that he could be an advocate for all who would ever place their trust in him. And this love is not momentary or fleeting. Verse 5 says, His steadfast love endures forever. The love that God has for his people is constant. It is enduring. This steadfast and loyal love 
is unwavering and unchanging. Romans 8 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? A few verses later, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor heights nor depths nor anything else <laughs> in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. The last part of verse 5, though, says, And his faithfulness to all generations. It can be tempting to look at the mighty acts of our God in Scripture and say, well, yeah, that's great, but that was then. But this is now. But God describes himself as not changing. And he says he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We serve the same God who made the world and then walked with Adam. We serve the same God who called Abram out of the Ur of the Chaldees and made a covenant with him. We serve the same God who was faithful to Isaac and Jacob, who brought Egypt to her knees for the sake of his people Israel, who parted the Red Sea, who slew armies, who sent his son to walk on water, to heal the sick, to raise the dead, who willingly went to the cross and sacrificed himself. This is the God whom we serve, and his faithfulness is not just to those generations, it is to all generations, and that includes you and me. So what are we to do with this psalm? What should be our actions and reactions to it? Well, we are to praise him loudly and publicly and constantly. If you're here today and you do not know our God, if you're here today and you hear us talking about our great God and King whom we adore, but really you can't relate to that because you aren't overwhelmed with excitement when you hear of God. Rather, you are crushed with guilt and fear. If that is you, I have a message for you. Specifically, our Lord says, or our God says through Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 33, he says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn from his way and live. And in Romans 10, the scriptures say, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now, there are countless people in this room that would love to talk to you. So if that is you, don't leave here today without talking with someone. You no longer have to carry the burden, the weight that you walked into this building with. You can leave it here. And instead, you can leave praising our God, the one who saved a wretch like me. But what if you're here today and your sins have been forgiven? You stand justified before God, but you don't feel like praising him. Maybe it's because there are things in your life that are weighing you down. Maybe it's stress. There may be things in your life that seem to be demanding first priority. We call that the tyranny of the urgent, right? There's, there's always something that needs to be addressed, and you just don't have time. You'd like to praise God, but you feel like, like you can't because there's just so much busyness, so many things that have to happen. Or maybe it's tragedy. Something has happened in your life that has hurt you so deeply. You know that God has saved you, but it's just hard to praise him for all that you've, after all that you've been through. Maybe it's sin. You're harboring sin in your life, and it makes you feel ashamed so that you feel like you can't praise God without a black cloud looming over it. Or maybe it's just the routine and familiarity of it all, like having a house with a view of the Grand Canyon. There's some mornings that you get up and you just don't even look out the window anymore. What do you do then? What do you do when you know that you should praise God, but you don't feel like praising God? First, we must remember that we cannot allow our feelings to control. There's a phrase that was repeated hundreds of times, and I'm not exaggerating, hundreds of times in my home when we were growing up, and that was, 
Christian character is doing what's right, no matter what you want or how you feel. Doing what's right, no matter what you want or how you feel. What does that mean? Well, in this circumstance, it means you praise anyway. You figure out what's preventing you from praising, you acknowledge that it's there, and you praise anyway. We do this every day in every other area of our life. Every one of us has woken up and said, I don't, I don't want to go to work today. But you still went. I don't feel like obeying traffic laws. But you still did. I don't feel like taking out the trash. Ho- hopefully you did. <laughs> I don't feel like whatever. But at the end of the day, we do them because we recognize that they're important to do, even if we don't feel like it. The difference here is that praising God should be the very core of our existence. It should be something we love to do. It's like saying, I don't feel like speaking kindly to my wife. Okay. I don't feel like spending time with my kids. Okay. Do it anyway. You can't say, well, I didn't feel like speaking kindly to my wife, so I yelled at her, and that's fine because I felt that way. What? No. That's ridiculous. No one would say that's okay. At the, the very foundation of those things is love, right? Our love for our wife, our love for our kids. Even more so, the very core of what we do in all of our life should be love for God. Love is not merely a feeling. It is a choice that we make. We have set our affection on our spouse. We've set our affection on our kids. How much more should we have set our affection on our Lord? As such, even when we don't feel like it, we should praise him. But after praising, we should take time to talk with God about why it is that you don't feel like praising. Even if you do not resonate with the psalm today, if you read Psalm 100 and you say, I, that's great, but I just don't feel like that psalmist. Even though you know you should, I challenge you today not to rest your head to sleep until you figure out the reason why. Don't just let all the other things, the busyness of life, go about you. Figure out what it is that is stealing your joy. Figure out what that is and praise anyway. And even if our love is fleeting and rises and falls with the tide, our text said today, his steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness is to all generations. Pray with me, please. Oh, our God, we love you. Lord, there are moments when we do not feel like we should, but yet your kindness toward us is everlasting. Lord, thank you that you don't respond to us as we respond to you. Father, I ask that you would flame, that you would fan the flames of our hearts. Lord, that we would not just know the truth, but that we would love the truth. That we would just not know that you exist and that you love us, but that it would be a passion that burns in our hearts. Lord, that it would overflow and our praise would be a natural outflowing of it. We love you, Father. In your son's name we pray. Amen.